Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorumdale Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about the problem with modern parenting. That which doesn't could, sound controversial at all. Which could be a lot of things. So I think we're actually <laughs> yeah. talking about a problem with modern parenting. There are probably lots of mo- lots of other problems. We want to talk about one of them. And it is a problem. It's it's raised by an article we read recently that Dusty sent that he's like, hey, this I think this makes a good podcast topic. And I hope that what we will do here is both talk about the problem, but also show how the gospel is part of the solution. Um Anytime we talk about parenting on the podcast, I want to acknowledge like, yeah, so it's one of those topics that doesn't apply to every single human being. And, but I think it does help us understand some of the cultural dynamics in play. Anytime, anytime people write or talk about parenting, I think what it helps us understand is why are the kids on my street or in my classroom or at my church? What are, what is going on that I need to be aware of? And so all of us who interact in society should care about some of the things that are present in our kids. And this article kind of takes that as the jumping off point, gives a few stats that came out recently about kids in America that this author says, "Mm, there's a deeper problem here we should talk about. So let me give the stats and then we can uh, dive into some story time. By the way, do you like how you can always hear papers rustling in the background of the the Wednesday? Real paper. We have really hot mics on the Wednesday conversation. And that means anytime we touch this table, you can hear me you can hear stuff pens it's papers. like we're real people with real paper it's like we're not cool enough to have the high dollar mics that actually <laughs> do good job we just have regular church guy mics that are decent for a podcast like this regular church guy regular church guy regular mics. old church guys <clears throat> between 2009 and 2019 so that's a 10 year span the percentage of teens who reported having persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 37% in 2021, it rose to 44%. So that's the stat this article wants to put on the radar is, hey, 13 years ago, a quarter of teens reported having persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Now almost half of teens report having those feelings. And that's a problem. That's something we should all care about. These are the the teenagers who live and work and um, are around you. And this affects all of us. And so um, the article we are looking at is an article from David French. The title is Parenting Against the Spirit of Fear. And he's using that statistic as a jumping off point and then um, trying to draw a connection that he feels like, hey, this is a connection we should be talking about in relation to these stats. I'm going to read the very last paragraph of the article so that you know where he's going. And then we'll kind of draw the connections for you. So. Here's what David French observes. We as people and we as parents are prone to expressing greater anxiety and greater fear in the face of lesser threats and lesser dangers than generations of parents in the past. And it's time to wonder if one of the reasons why our kids are anxious and in pain is that they're reflecting and amplifying the anxiety and pain they see in their parents. Boom, there's the mic drop for the French. Is hey, maybe the reasons our kids are anxious and in pain is that they're just amplifying what they see in their parents. I think that's a provocative hypothesis, and it was obviously yeah. provocative enough to you, Dusty, that you wanted us to read the article and talk about it. It was, and there's a number of things, obviously, that he is uh, taking into consideration, things like living through a pandemic, 
I also think his comments in this article about uh, more people, more moms and dads working from home, seeing the stress of their parents. All your stress at work is in your living room now instead of at the office. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> your legit. bad day at work is now a bad day in your home office. You thought having a home office was great. You actually need a 20 minute drive. <laughs> you, do. you know, your kids need your 20 minute drive. Um, I can relate to that. I live two miles from the church. Yep. And so sometimes you drive uh, around the block a few. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I hit the driveway on the phone and I'm like, what's going on? And, and so you can just easily carry it in. So I think some of the, he t- he's taking into consideration those few things. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about his story of his own. Cause, cause one of the, th- one of the connections he's drawing is, Hey, when I was a kid, actually the world was a lot worse, but my life was a lot better. And, and he, so I don't, you might disagree. Maybe you feel like David French is being an old guy. who's like, back when I was a kid, <laughs> it was way worse than it is now. But I think he has a point. Let me, re, let me read you what he talks about. He says, I grew up in a scary time. My first political memories are of the Iran hostage crisis, sitting in long gas lines and seeing glimpses of news reports about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. There was a palpable sense of American decline, a deep fear that the escalating Cold War could grow hot which would likely have meant mass death and the end of civilization as we knew it. So he's saying, hey, look, I grew up, you know, he's, he names the years 1981, 82, 83. That's when he was a child. And he's saying, hey, man, the world was chaos then. And yeah. there was a lot to be afraid of. And yet, he said, Amid, amidst profound geopolitical uncertainty and a degree of domestic social disorder that is far worse than what we experience today, I grew up a happy kid because of my parents. Mm-hmm. And he just says, hey, my parents just, they didn't let all of that seep down into my childhood. Now, I think it's really interesting what he's saying, mainly because I'm old like David French. So I remember those days. I moved to Omaha in 1982. And I can remember, I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys, you guys are both a little younger than me. So I was like might, three. This I might think not be as present for you. But I can remember, well, so, you know, my youngest childhood was in California. And in California, we always used to do earthquake drills in school. Where yeah. it, was like, it was like a tornado drill, but in an earthquake, you actually just get under your desk because actually what's going to happen is like everything's going to collapse on you. And so they just want you under something stable. So it wasn't like run to the basement because there were no basements. It was literally just get under your desk and put your hands over your head. So we used to do these earthquake drills and it was like kind of freaky. Like, what if this was a real thing? What if it was an earthquake, right? I remember thinking as like a seven-year-old, what if this was a real earthquake? That'd be kind of freaky. But then, similarly, we used to do, like, nuclear strike drills where it's like, let's simulate that there's a nuclear, a nuclear bomb. You know, what are we going to do? Because wow. it's, it's the Cold War. And it was like that was the present reality for every human being in America at that time. It was like, man, you know, if Russia launches a nuke at us, you know, we got whatever, uh, 30 minutes and we're all going to die. And so this was a, a, a significant reality, especially at that season of time. And then, you know, of course— Later in the 80s, as sort of the Soviet Union kind of fell apart and the Berlin Wall came down, that all changed. But the 80s were Cold War. And, man, it was there was a lot of tension and fear. And, and people lived. There was a thing we used to have to learn about in civics back then that was called MAD, MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, which basically the philosophy of war was because Russia and the United States were both nuclear powers— if either of them launched a nuclear strike, it would be known to the other one before the missile hit. And so the other one would launch a nuclear missile. And basically, we would just both destroy each other. So the mutually assured destruction was just a zero-sum game. It was basically like, we both have nukes. They're both pointed at each other. And if one of us launches them, the other one's going to launch them. And you can just, we're all going to die. 
So that was the world we lived in. And as you can imagine, it was a little, bit it was a little scarier than, oh, you know what? Um, gas prices are high. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we have some problems today. And, but I think friendship makes a fair case that like, yeah, I'm not sure it's as scary growing up right now as it was in yeah. the 80s. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, and, and also thinking about how you got your information yes. is also important, yes. right? Because now we all have all information all the time. True. And so like you're kind of waiting for an evening update. Yes. <laughs> the right? evening news, we find out what's going on in the world. There's no social media. Yeah. This was the 80s, y'all. There wasn't even a cell phone. Give me a break. Yeah, that's that's fair. Things were a little worse. Bethany, and what, your information was limited. What were the greatest geopolitical fears in your childhood? I don't know. I felt like school shootings became a thing oh, yeah. in my childhood. Sure they did. And now that is carried over. So I feel like yeah. that's a thing, a very real and present danger. But obviously then like 9-11 and that kind oh, of thing. Yeah, but sure. I don't think fear of imminent war or that, not necessarily carried over, but terrorism on like a larger scale, yes. like a terrorist attack. Yeah, I it, think that was yeah, probably it went, the You're right. It went from like the threat of a large nuclear power to the threat of a small band of terror. So that yeah. there was still a threat of violence, but it was a different kind of violence yeah. and a different kind of fear. Yeah, like the likelihood of you actually... Dying in a terrorist attack is pretty small, but like it just seemed like, oh, that can happen. That can happen a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a few factors that French points out in this article uh, about your home. And so I think these have crept in. I don't think anybody's deliberately decided, you know what? I want my kids to be uh, all about activism at a young age. Mm. Um, but he does, he does talk about activism. He says, hey, sooner, sooner than needed kids are learning how to uh, make a stand for something. Hmm. Uh, and maybe even, he, he doesn't even say like it's Christian oriented. It's just like a thing. Yeah. Like, and I've seen this. I've seen kids in our church be political. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, it's just interesting to be <laughs> like, I've known enough to yeah. vote yet. Why do you care so much? Yeah. Um, and then he, he just gets at the fear-based rhetoric has crept into the home and it's, it showed up in activism it showed up, uh, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with many parents' workplace being in the actual home. Let's come back to that in a second. Because, um, so let me, I want to explain this sort of, the logical case French is making. So he's saying, hey, when I was a kid, world was worse. I was pretty safe and stable. And it's because, he goes, it's because my mom let me leave the house, go play with my friends wherever I wanted. I just had to be home for dinner. It was like, there was no hovering. There was no helicopter parenting. There were no cell phones. There was no, like you know, Google mapping people. It's just like, you were just a kid, go be a kid. We have adult problems, but you don't need to worry about them, right? So he, he chronicles now the differences between that world and the world we live in. And, and basically the case he makes is um, more and more, the reason kids have more anxiety and mental health issues is because actually adults have more of them. So yeah. basically he's saying if, if he, you know, the stats he started with are those stats of kids 26% having persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2009, 44% in 2020. But he says that just maps onto the same problems in adults. And so adults are less mentally healthy than they were uh, 12 years ago. But he says, so, so here's what's happening in adult world. One, more anxiety and depression. So here's a stat between August 2020 and February 2021. The percentage of adults with recent symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder increased from 36% to 41%. Um, 
Then he goes on and says, adults are demonstrating increasing raw animosity against their fellow citizens. We're more partisan than we used to be. We're more angry at each other than we used to be. Then he says, adults are also constricting conscripting children into political causes more and making them be activists, which you just mentioned. He says also, we're working more from home. And he says, finally, there's a change in parenting styles. Like we have these new terms like helicopter parenting, which is like a, your grandma probably wasn't a helicopter parent. Like it was just a different world back then. Go play. And so he says that all these factors together among adults, that, that all those things compounded among adults lead to us placing demands on kids or parenting kids in a way that just doesn't help them thrive. And so that's, he's sort of saying like your adult problems are seeping down into your kids and, and that's related to work at home. It's related to us being more political and more angry than usual, et cetera. And it, another thing that he uh, briefly mentions is snowplow parenting. How we're, and I have totally experienced this right now. I'm sending my first kid off to college. Bob, this is your, uh, you're a few kids deep doing this. Oh, yeah. But the whole conversation every, literally every time with anybody is, oh, well, what's he going to do? I'm like, well, he's 18. He'll like, figure it out. <laughs> he's going to go to college. He wants to go to college. He's going to pursue electrical engineering. And then, you know, he's going to figure it out. Like, he's only 18. I don't know. We're, we're not going to determine his life right now. And the, the whole idea around you need to know exactly what you're going to be when you're 35 and yeah. uh, have all that set up now is also pressurized yes. onto kids. All right. So let me read one more quote, and then we'll turn the corner to say, okay, great. Here's the problem. What does the scripture have to say about it? Um, an, art, an author a few weeks ago in Psychology Today by Peter Gray argues that suffocating modern parenting prevents children from fulfilling three fundamental psychological needs, the need for autonomy, the need for competence, and the need for relatedness. I want you to remember those three words because I think we should come back and talk about those. Here's the paragraph from Psychology Today. This author says, I've long been concerned with the continuous rise over roughly the past 50 years in the rates of depression, anxiety, and suicides among children and teens. This increase has occurred during a period in which young people have been subjected to ever-increasing amounts of time being supervised, directed, and protected by adults, and have ever less opportunity to play freely and in other ways pursue their own interests and solve their own problems. I have argued that there is a cause-effect relation between these two historical trends, the pressure and continuous monitoring and judgments from adults, coupled with loss of freedom to follow their own interests and solve their own problems, results in anxiety, depression, and general dissatisfaction with life. So this is a psychologist saying this, and French is saying, hey, that's a pretty profound observation. What he's saying is, we are... We are keeping our kids from becoming autonomous, competent, and learning how to relate to one another and solve their own problems. And so, again, to get to, to French's conclusion, he says, um, I wonder if one of the reasons why our kids are anxious is that they're reflecting and amplifying the anxiety and pain they see in parents every day. Now, I think it's a provocative hypothesis. The goal is not to make you feel b- terrible about the, all the ways you're screwing up your kids because most parents are already worried about, like, am I, am I ruining my kids because I'm a sinner and, you know, they're – inheriting what I am passing on. The answer is yes, you are messing up your kids, but the good news is- (laughs) You can repent later. Yeah, the good news is you could actually repent and grow in grace and it's okay and God is good and he's going to be sovereign. And in fact, French says, hey, there's no formula for this. 
the best kids come from the most broken homes. And even when parents do all, all kinds of things right, your, your kids can still go wrong. So this isn't like a formula. He's not trying to argue like if you just did some other stuff right, your kids would, would turn out better. What he's saying is there seems to be a correlation between the troubles that teens have and, be, and between some of the statistical realities that it shows about American adult parents. And so for us as Christians, I think we need to step back and ask this question. Um, is our is our anxiety and pain, how is our anxiety and pain getting passed on to our kids? And what of what in this article do you need to hear as a parent and go, yep, I'm prone to bring my stress home from work or I'm prone to um, offload onto my kids some of my own anxiety and fear and worry. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I remember we did a podcast a number of years ago, I think, on an article about free play. And this person is yeah. just like, kids just need to go like, explore and build stuff and run through the park and, you know, all the things that we do to try to structure them so that they're supervised all the time actually prevents them from growing up. Right. Prevents them from developing a healthy self. Now, what's funny is I think it feels dangerous to most people to be like, well, kids, go have fun in the neighborhood. Let me know if you need it. I mean, you know, it just feels like we live in a world where, uh, I don't know. They're going to get kidnapped. Seriously, they're going to run into someone who's really nefarious and, you know, but... What the, the point that French makes in it, he, he has this line in here where he's like, you know, what's funny is the thing we do to keep them safe is we hand them a phone. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's, that's clearly not, that's clearly not more safe than the neighborhood park. Like I, he, he, it's interesting these we seem to be making these mental trade-offs of like, well, you know what? Can't have my kid hanging out in the neighborhood with those kids down the street. So keep them at home, keep them safe. Here's a phone. Here's, here's the a, whole here's world. A screen. I'm not you know, that feels safer, but his point is they're going to end up statistically more depressed, more anxious, more self-conscious. All the stats about social media and screen time seem to show that. Are we really gaining anything? Which I think is a provocative question. Basically the article is saying as your kid is developing a sense of their own self, they're, they're totally vamping off of you. Yes. And they can't not be, yes, they can't not be catching. We've taught this for years. They can't not be catching your emotional state your relational state. They have to be able to be uh, on their own two feet, conquering something and relating in healthy ways to other human beings. Uh, otherwise they're going to just be a, a big fear-based ball of anxiety. Yes. Okay. So I'm curious about a couple things, Dusty. Let's start applying this now to the church. I just want to ask you as a pastor who works with a lot of people, a lot of do, does a lot of counseling and care, works with a lot of marriages, talks to a lot of kids. Um, do you do you think this same thing is true in the church? Like, do you feel like do you feel like you see kids carrying some of the anxieties and fears of their parents? Is that is that generally true? Yes, I, I think that is generally true, um, and I think it's happening. I think what what's happening is parents have to deal with it later on. So, like, it's showing up yep. in the teenage years when you should be autonomous and conquering something. Yeah. What do you think the gospel has to say to this? So if you're trying to help a parent who <clears throat> feels some of these things, right, who deals with anxiety, fear, worry about the world, worry about my kids, worry, you know, if I carry some of that, where, where does the gospel need to begin to speak to those things in my life to allow me to have a little bit more of a peaceful, gentle, and stable kind of presence? Well, I think, first of all, we have to realize my presence matters. So how I'm showing up, if I'm showing up fearful and anxious, well, my kids are going to be catching that. Uh, as a person who is 
glass half empty and uh, tends to carry a little bit of low-grade anxiety already, I already have to have an awareness of that in my own home. So I actually have to counteract that with a great deal of hope. And and I think, so, so I, was, I think number one, we have to just be aware of my current state. How am I, how am I most likely being experienced in this moment? And then I have to hold on to hope because there's no such thing as a hopeless Christian as we've learned from one of our mentors here. And I think French, he even mentions this scripture in the article in 2 Timothy 1.7, the apostle Paul declares, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. He talks about how his parents were strict, but they weren't fearful. Hmm. And so I think we have to realize there's so much fear-based um, noise going on, and we already have our own insecurities. So now I'm listening to all this fear-based noise. I have to realize that the scripture can reframe all of that. Hmm. I wonder, he mentions in his own story, in times of uncertainty, I turned to my parents to understand how to react. I took many of my emotional cues from them which is a thing that intuitively kids do, and I don't think we're always aware that it's happening. Like, as a parent, I I forget how much my kids yep. are taking their emotional cues from me. It's just something we all do without thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and so just, you, you mentioned just the important, the category of awareness of, like, I have to be aware that I'm setting the temperature. People are, people in my household are responding and reacting off of the, the sort of ways that I respond and react. And so I have to take responsibility for that as a mom or as a dad. I've had to think about this because uh, our daughter's car got hit in the high school parking lot. Oh, it's like bumper cars out there, you guys. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's You're giving worst. a bunch of 16-year-olds uh, missiles to drive in a parking lot together. Uh, and her, her car got uh, dinged in the front. And she was, like, nervous about how I was going to react, you know? Yep. And I realized, whoa, like, how I respond right now is really important. Yep. She's assuming I'm going to be upset. Number one, I'm, I am kind of upset, but I'm upset that it happened. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, well, but then you're just like, well, of course this happens. Like it's a bunch of wing nuts driving around <laughs> in the parking lot. They're all, maybe half of them shouldn't be driving. I don't know, but it just happens. And so like that experience, she's going to take that and vamp off of that. And, and that becomes her emotional response as well. I'm mindful too of asking how the gospel sort of helps us in this struggle. I'm mindful of that section in Herman Bovink that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where he says, hey, the world is not heaven, but it's not hell either. I wonder if you said, you know, Christians, there's no such thing as a non-hopeful Christian. Like we're always going to hold on to hope. But I wonder if one of the disciplines we need is just like an ability to look at the news of what's going on in the world and be like, yeah, it's not the worst thing. You know, like it could it could always be worse. Yeah. And if, if some of what, you know, I'm sorry to go back to my childhood again. But like I started, you know, we didn't have cable. <laughs> that's, how, that's how long ago I lived. We didn't have cable. And you guys are like, what's cable? Uh, those kids now are like, wait, cable? I just cable? I just watched TV on my phone. What are you talking about? Is that an app? Is cable an app? Uh, so we had just, you know, the major networks. And then like when I was in junior high, Fox, Fox started. And we're like, oh, it's, a yes. new, it's, another, it's a fourth network in addition to ABC, CBS, and NBC. But what I'm saying is, you know, there actually were just two news cycles. There was the morning news cycle and the after, and the evening news cycle. And two newspapers, you know, there's a morning issue and the evening issue. That was really, so there was no, there was not the ability to be nervous all day about everything. Right. Then when you, like sometime in my, well, I mean, K 
cable existed when I was a kid, but when finally when it started to become mainstream, like almost all my friends had cable in junior high and high school, then you started getting channels like CNN where there's like a, there has to be a 24 hour news cycle because it's their business model, right? So you started to see the cable news networks rise. You know, now you have Fox and MSNBC and, CV and CNN and all these cable news networks. And there really is a 24 hour news cycle. And then you have the rise of social media and of the smartphone, which is just perpetuating all that. So what it creates for us is it is possible for us to be awash in information about what's going on in the world all the time. Yeah. And the only way for, for us to keep viewers interested or keep people clicking is to have another take on what's going on in the world. And so like taking, you know, the, the war in Ukraine right now, right. It's been going on for 60 days or something like that. Uh, maybe I guess more than that. Um, 70, 80 days. But the, 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 the news on that is just a constant feed. It's just like more and more and more and more and more feed of everything that's going on and the stuff you haven't heard yet or more analysis of what you have heard. And I think what that creates is just the capacity to be more worried about everything. The yeah. capacity to, if I can pull up my phone every 10 minutes and look for another <laughs> article, it just creates, I think in my childhood, it was easier to have the luxury of like, well, I'm just going to watch the five o'clock news and I guess I'll find out what's going on then. And if there is a nuclear strike, I'm sure there'll be a tornado siren that goes off to yeah. let me know. You know, there's, there's no way of like something will happen taking in that data at, at one o'clock in the afternoon. And so I guess I'm saying, well, that's a long way of saying, I wonder if one of the practices here is just the spiritual discipline of disengagement of that might be from social media, but it might even just be from like news and information. I think we sometimes act as though social media is the thing when really what social media is, is just a tool to get me connected to data and information. And some of what we need is to live quieter lives, to live, mm -hmm. to live more disconnected lives, to go on more walks, <laughs> to take the dog out more to the park, you know, just to get out of a world that's constantly telling us what we should be worried about because there's a whole ecosystem in our lives that tells us what to worry about. And it seems like the challenge for modern Christians seems to be building our lives on the scriptures and on the sovereignty of God in the face of constant things to worry about. Yeah. And I think that's what French is, is raising here. He's saying, if you think you can just hear that information and it not affect you or your disposition in your home, you're wrong. It's, it has to leak into your kids. It will leak into your kids. If you think you can just work in the dining room all day and then come out and be a completely like, and just turn it off and turn it on to being a dad, that's just not like, we're not categorical like that. Like your kids are, your kids are seeing pieces of you that, that you need um, to, to take to the Lord and buffer a little bit so that, so that you're not living a fear-based life. Yeah. Fear-based life is a good way of putting it. I think that's what the gospel would call us to not live, but what much of modern world wants to push us into living. Because, man, you know what? People make people make monetary decisions out of fear. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, advertisers tell you. Totally. If you want people to do something, make them angry or fearful. Those are the two things that move people to action. It's like, I will buy something or do something. Did you? Sorry. That was, I hit the that table. Was a lot that of was, that's what happened in the, in the studio. I will buy something or do something or act on something if I'm angry or if I'm scared. So we live in a world that pushes us in that direction. I wonder here just how much to just the basic fruit of the spirit, right? The, the whole idea of like the fullness of the spirit bringing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that 
that those things need to become not Bible verses that we memorized once or good ideas that we should, you know, think about every once in a while. But that needs to become our pursuit. Like, what does it mean for me to become a person who is gentle, patient, joyful? This, I think God is giving us there a picture of what is, what does a mature Christian character look like? And only the Holy Spirit can get us there, but also that's to, it's giving us something to strive for. It's giving us something to say, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of life I want to have, is a life marked by those things. And um, it seems like this article is saying, yep, the more you are pursuing those things, the benefits of those things in your own soul will also affect people who are younger than you and who are looking to you and following you. One of the very small things that I've tried to be mindful of is just the phrases that I use the most at home. Um, and I've tried to stop saying, be careful. Mm. Um, mostly because of my own story and because of uh, the the lack of risk that I tend to take already. I, I just have this cautious disposition all the time and, and basically everything. And so when my kids are about to go do something or they're about to make a decision or something, I'll just, I will always, I just have this spirit of like, well, be careful, you know, yeah. which sounds like wisdom but it's actually fear-based. And so I've actually tried to stop myself from saying, be careful. Instead, I want to replace that with, I kind of want to like, this is where I want to go. I want to like stand on all the whole council of scriptural and and say, man, be courageous, Hmm. like kind of defy fear on purpose and go get it. You know, I like that. So I think convicted right now of all the times I say, be careful. Well, I'm just, I'm just (laughs) preaching to myself here, (laughs) but I, 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 I feel like, especially in this age now, since we're raising kids in this current age, we have to, I think Christians are going to have to be more courageous than ever, not careful. Yeah. And those many phrases that I'm constantly dropping at home are going to be shaping the main culture of the home. Yep. The article, if you want to read it, is called Parenting Against the Spirit of Fear. It is at The Dispatch, um, which, by the way, I've heard a couple people in national politics commend the dispatch recently as just a a project of some journalists that are trying to do good old school journalistic work. And so I think as an outlet in general, um, it's a good place to go to get some news that won't, that isn't as partisan and as polarized as some of the places we go are. So I appreciate the work they're doing. And again, David French is one of those writers that I don't always agree with everything he says, but I think this article raises some Um, important questions for us as Christian parents to think about and for those of us who are wanting to build church cultures that are not anxious and fearful. So you can even think about, I mean, the article is about parenting, but you might even think about your gospel community or the culture of your church as a whole. Just are we, as God's people, buying, you know, into the virtues of courage and gentleness and patience and, um, or are we being pulled along by anxiety and fear and worry? And um, so hope that's been a fruitful um, and reflective um, conversation for you. And if you want to read it yourself, you can feel free to go find it. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.